This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! It's Rog. Oh, you're suboptimal light in the darkness, here to help you navigate a world without the XFL. I know. I know. It's almost unimaginable. How are we going to cope? I say, yes, we can. We choose resilience. We choose tenacity. We're here for each other. We're in this together. Having said that, it's now a month since the first cancelled Premier League Saturday. A month since sport, since our lifeblood basically stopped. Feels longer. But we're still alive! Gotta say thanks to my great GFOP friend, Devon Lager, for his much-needed pick-me-up this weekend. He tweeted me, Cheer up, Rog. At least Everton haven't lost in over a month. Ah, oh, Devon. Thanks for your bright side, but I've got to be honest. i bite your arm off right now to surrender a two-goal lead after the 94th minute against Newcastle. Oh, long for those days. And if you do too, let me just suggest, those of you who, like me, are jonesing for football with every single atom of their being, watch Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix, because oh, this weekend, that's how I partially filled the gap. The gap, that aching primal scream for live football, Sunderland Till I Die is excellent. And I say that as a gent who has made a kind of hard knock series. You may remember I partnered with my great mate John Hock to make the behind the scenes for the US Men's 2014 World Cup campaign movie for ESPN. And I really admired the way the Sunderland filmmakers emotionally edit the live football scenes. They do such an amazing job. So good that I found myself watching the episodes and cheering for each goal. I'd get off my couch, I'd punch the air, I'd scream full-throatedly. I'm not going to lie. I cried at times too. And you will too. Even though you know the results before you watch the show, you know it all ends badly. It ends in doom. But if you watch that show... You'll know what resilience is. You'll learn what real tenacity is. Sunderland fans, amazing. We go again. We will not let it slip. Too soon. I know Liverpool fans, too soon. So let's do this. You are listening to WGFOP, The Bald. Chat shit, get answers. The show, you know the drill. You ask the big questions. I give the small answers, a.k.a. the bald truth. And we've had so many magical questions sent from you GFOPs this weekend. We've also had so many magical stings sent to us by you beautiful GFOPs this weekend. So, producer Jonah, pick one. Well, we got a 646 and a 4-5-0. WGFOP, the ball, the ball, the ball, the ball, the ball. Oh, Matt, super. 
That's such a great American name up there with Billy Ocean. And you're from the greater city, Chicago, home of your 2020 World Series champion White Sox. That is some blues worthy of the Maxwell Street tradition. Oh, that thing makes me long for nights spent in the checkerboard lounge. Southside, keep calling in your questions. 646 450 9472. One note before we dive in this Wednesday, upcoming. At 5 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to launch a new weekly feature on Men in Blazers. It's going to be a weekly Insta Live, that's Instagram Live happy hour, where we'll drink a bud with one very special guest. So please put it in your book this Wednesday. Come and join us on Insta. Follow us if you don't already at Men in Blazers. Okay, question one batter up. Hello, my name is Ben. I am calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm an 11-year-old kid. When my dad introduced me to your suboptimal show, I instantly turned to your misery and joined you as a blue. My question question for you is, who do you think is the single uh, best uh, Everton bearded player? Courage. Oh, 11-year-old Ben, I love this question. And not just because I can hear a voice in the background at the very end. Your dad, maybe, whispering a reminder to say courage as a sign-off. But I also love how you become a blue in one of my favourite cities in America, Minneapolis, where just over a year ago to this day, we did a live show for thousands of football mad loons the night before your beautiful new stadium opened. I love, I think, I love your juicy Lucy kingdom. It is a hardy place filled with, wow, an idiosyncratic passion, I'd call it. You are all tough enough to become Everton fans, you are all tough enough to smash the struggles of pandemic life. So, your question requires a quick potted history of Premier League beards. Because, oh, when I grew up, there were so many bearded players in top flight football. This was before all the money poured into the game, when footballers were everyday human beings. They had everyday haircuts back then. They had everyday tummies. Little beer bellies, if I'm being honest. And my childhood hero, Bob Latchford, great beard. Socrates, the enigmatic Brazilian iconic doctor turned footballer, great beard. I mean, football was beard, 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 beard. I mean, essentially every single footballer looked like they could play on the O-line for the Vikings. But then came the Premier League, money flowing in. Oh, and the game changed that. Or to be precise, David Beckham changed that. Yep. He was never the greatest footballer on any team, but he was always the best looking. And what he did, he fused soccer and popular culture and style. Those three elements, really, to his marriage to Posh Spice, she introduced him to blonde streaks and makeovers, constant makeovers, and just the brand money flowed in. And once that did, other footballers followed in his stead, turned away from the beard, turned to the dark side in many ways. I've often said... When you look at Beckham's United headshots and you see the hairstyles, you know, the, the early punk haircut, then he did the British infantryman, World War II infantryman with short back and sides. There was a, the brill cream note of 1960s English footballer, even the cornrows. Essentially, there are only six kinds of Premier League hairstyle that are legally allowed in football. And David Beckham pioneered each one. And in doing so, he killed the bloody beard. He did. Killed it. Almost single-handedly. I mean, why grow anything that covers your good looks, your moneymaker, your singular asset? 
and the beard was so dead, so dead, so gone, so out of it, it's actually come back. Especially amongst a superlatively good-looking footballer. The person who's unbelievably confident in their good looks. Your Olivier Giroud, your Alisson at Liverpool. Oh, your Egyptian king, Mo Salah. What a curly, beautiful beard. Lacazette, the beard that bows. And perhaps, yeah, the most handsome of all. Troy Deeney, Fat Drake. Oh, that beard. I mean, you look at the facial hair that these men wear. It's almost as if they've chosen it as a gilt edge frame around an exquisite work of art. My favourite, do you need to ask? Andre Gomez. Yeah. Yeah, that Everton midfield sex god. To be honest, I'm not actually sure he's even very good at football. It's not evident yet, but who cares? That is not important, to be honest. Because Andre Gomez and his beard single-handedly make a team that features Jordan Pickford, Seamus Coleman and Tom Davis on the regs. About, approx, 180% better looking, single-handedly, with that beard. That duo, Andre Gomez and that beard, the two of them together, Beard and Gomez, the most handsome player we've had since Romelu left, arguably since Mikel Arteta left. And it is that beard, that luxurious hair rolling around the midfield at Goodison Park so gracefully. Oh, it's that beard I miss almost more than anything in my life right now. Oh, I miss sport so very much. Question two. Hey, Raj and Devo, this is Jake Allen from Chico, California. I am a sad Spurs supporter and happy and proud Portland Timbers supporter and Portland Thorns. My question is, in light of Spurs being total wankers about paying all of their employees, is it okay to question my fandom to the team in this moment? Thanks, guys. Stay safe. Hello, Jake Allen. Hello, Chico, Tree City, USA. Aren't you happy I'm answering this question today after Spurs U-turn and not before? <laughs> but look, big picture. It is a funny old time in the Premier League news cycle. The big, urgent news of weeks past has been reduced to just a burble of juxtaposed threads. On one hand, big money moves rumoured. I mean, as a Spurs fan, you're no doubt antagonised by that cliffhanger that is Harry Kane to Man United for $240 million. United fans also like, yeah, and Jadon Sancho, $140 million. Snap your arms off, Paul Pogba. Oh, to Soul Cycle on a free and all those other narratives. And then down the same back pages, you've got other headlines. Premier League teams in crash crunch. Football in Armageddon financial meltdown. Teams will have to sell players just to make wage built. These dueling narratives, these conflicting narratives. Important note, these dueling narratives can coexist. You've just got to know who is the source for the story. It behooves agents to brief the press that their players are being linked with moves to big teams for big money. Even as club executives and those big teams are briefing the same journalists that everything's going down the toilet. Self-interest in football, like self-interest in life, is everything. But Spurs, though... Look, you know this, Jake. All Spurs fans know this. Spurs don't operate like other clubs, for good and for bad, in good times and less good. I mean, they've not splurged on wages. They don't spunk away money in the transfer market. Daniel Levy 
is known as a savage negotiator. And they don't have the financial firepower to be a City, a United or a Liverpool. And under Pochettino at his best, this all worked in your favour. Your club overachieved. They thrilled us. They really thrilled us on a frugal budget, the most frugal of budgets. You loved it. Neutrals loved it. Everyone who doesn't scream for Arsenal, you had to at least admire it. But what Spurs have been going through over the past three weeks, when they and Newcastle and briefly, briefly Liverpool decided to furlough their non-playing staff in Spurs situ, 550 human beings. They decided to apply for government money to pay 80% of their wages. And Spurs and Newcastle became massive public scapegoats in the process. It's really just the other side of that frugal coin. It brings you success and now it brings you agony. Today, under incredibly fierce pressure from the club's own fans to explain their actions, Spurs have, like Liverpool before them, reversed this decision and have now promised to pay all non-playing staff their wages in full. So your question's moot for now. But what I would have said is this, Jake. Football fandom, it's a long-term game. There's an old adage, we've talked about it a lot on the show, that you can change your partner, you could change your underpants, but you can never, ever change the football club you support. Well, it's actually, it's not as true as we thought it was. I've actually come to believe that as in real life, so in football, this pandemic has changed everything. Handshakes, masks, social distancing, the world has changed irrevocably and so I'll say something that's possibly controversial I believe that the rules of football fandom may have changed too because my belief is this the coronavirus nightmare exposes the truth about people how individuals act right now your family your friends politicians celebrities all of us how institutions act how brands act we are seeing their real truth crisis brings out the essence an essence by the way that will be long remembered. How we act now will be remembered for for a long time. And football teams are not immune from this. It's a defining moment for us. It's a defining moment for them too. And as a fan, what can you do, Jake? You can speak up. And in Spurs' case, the story ends as a testament right now to the truth of fans and their power, quasi-power, and how important a role supporters can play in this moment. Huge respect, by the way. said this the other day about Liverpool. I'll say the same now about Spurs for weathering the public relations meltdown and admitting they were wrong publicly and reversing course. I wish more people in public life did that because they used to, but it's all too rare now. But if people and organisations clash with your values, Jake, if your football team acts in a way that violates a core value of yours, first, don't give up. Try and understand why they might be doing what they're doing in a way that's deeper than the headlines. Don't be knee-jerk. I mean, David Conn wrote a piece today, brilliant journalist. He wrote a piece in The Guardian about just how many clubs are facing a massive liquidity crunch. Despite their profits, they're fighting to make payroll. Many of them believe they're fighting to save jobs. So ask the hardest questions you can. And if you still can't live with the answers, act accordingly. Not connected, but there's room for everyone at Everton, Jake Allen. Producer Jonah. A sting, please. You're tuned in to Suboptimal Radio for Suboptimal Times. WDFOP. The Bald. Oh, 
Michael Maguire from Hudson, New York. You know exactly how much I love your sting. The best Tracy since Murray. Deep Washington Bullets cut for you. I love Hudson too. I miss it deeply. It is a beautiful, beautiful town and I cannot wait to be up there in the valley with you all soon. Keep calling in your questions. 646-450-9472. Next question, please. Jonah Buchanan. Raj. Hi, this is uh, Jay from Bozeman, Montana, and I'm an Everton fan. And my question regard, you know, I didn't grow up with uh, EPL and as a later fan. You know, during that time, say a team like Liverpool, they were either just lost in the noise of uh, teams beating Everton, or they were an absolute delight. So I have to admit, I love watching Liverpool. So that leads to the question of how resentful are uh, lifelong EPL fans of uh, EPL gentrifiers like myself who just come waltzing in and just can enjoy what they observe? You know, I can't bring myself to hate Liverpool. Thanks. Bye. Oh, can I just say, we are getting so many questions from Montana. I would love to understand why, because it seems like a state of mad, passionate Premier League fans, and I want to travel there to be with you now. I'm going to come when this is all over. I'm properly intrigued. Your question is a terrific one. The term Premier League gentrifiers is perfect, because, you know, the rise of Premier League from local distraction to global powerhouse brand has transformed the game in so many ways, both good and bad, and like gentrification of a neighbourhood, it is hard, some would say impossible to stop. So the answer is actually complex. Let's go back to the 80s, when I grew up, when I had hair, when English football was kind of like a troglodyte medieval hooligan culture based on parochial rivalries. Oh, the good old days. And the business model back then for every single English team, no matter what division they were in, was just putting bums on seats, putting bums on seats, fill the stadium. As long as it was full on match day, everything was good. And those bums to be candid, were largely local, almost exclusively. Football was rarely broadcast on television, never mind in the world, I mean locally. And the idea of a global footprint was just an anathema. No one thought, God, this huge men lumping around in the mud here at Everton Football Club, the world really wants to watch this crap. I mean, the big world stars in Italy, in France, in Brazil, we'd heard of them. But imagine this. We only really got to see them play pretty much come World Cup time. Your Barcelonas, your Real Madrid, your River Plate, your Botafogos. They existed like life on other planets. Really, in our imaginations only. Believe it. And this continued when I first moved to America in the early 90s. It was so hard to follow match to match from here. Never mind the injury news and transfer gossip. I'm talking about big games. And Everton had big games. They did. There were many. Okay, there were a few. And I've said many times, I had to phone my dad and have him hold his phone against the radio just to follow along. That's how hard it was to connect globally to English football. But the internet changed everything. Enabled us in America to connect to the daily soap opera, the telenovela that is our favourite team. as easily from New York, from Chicago, from Bozeman. As from Liverpool, from Leicester, from Leighton Orient. And as games started to be broadcast on Fox and Satanta back then, American fans became knowledgeable, really 
bloody knowledgeable. I mean, it's been one of the joys of my past two decades, just seeing this upswing in just deeply informed American football fans. Huge. Often no more than fans from other traditional footballing hotbeds, but there was an unwritten law back then. Football fans were divided into two types. You had your season ticket holders who actually went to the game live, saw it with their own eyes, heard the chants with their own ears, risked botulism by eating the pies with their own digestive systems. Those were the real fans. And everyone else who watched around the world on television, they were known. Terribly derogative term. Plastic fans. Or just plastics. Ah, you're a plastic fan. Shut up. And in those days... I've got to explain the internet to young listeners. Back then, there were primitive ways of interacting. They were called chat rooms. Some of you will remember them, but for those who can't, web pages where people would post their thoughts. Little comments. Like chat rooms on Twitch, but without the live action. And there were chat rooms for everything, like gardening aficionados had their chat room. If you were a Second World War aircraft rebuilder, you had your chat room. And every single football team had one. And I remember reading those chat room threads you know fans coming together after the game and they'd often go something like this it would be like wazza from liverpool posts i thought leon osman had a dead good game on saturday he was ace and then underneath chase let's say someone called chase wrote i thought he started well but faded after moy switched to three in the midfield which led to Everton being outnumbered by Bradford City. His distribution was poor, and his inability to press out of possession made him a virtual passenger in the second half. Wazza would then return and post the following. Where are you from, Chase? Oh, Chase was so dead. Had to post, be honest, and from Akron, Ohio. Wazza would then return and deliver the coup de grace. Well, shut your mouth! You know nothing, you big plastic! And there was no comeback from that. There was no comeback for Chase because being branded a plastic fan was just a savage knockout blow every time. And one of the joys of the last decade of football, especially since NBC stepped up and invested so much in the quality of Premier League broadcasting, is watching that notion, that horrific notion to me. Because I know that the American, I I don't know Chase, but I know Chase is. And they know what they're talking about. And watching that notion of plastics fade into obscurity in this new world order where Premier League teams court global fans in general and American fans, it should be said, in particular. So the plastic fan has been eviscerated. The knowledge that to compete as a Premier League brand, you have to be global. That's opened up many British fans' eyes to the necessity of their teams courting global fans and not just fans. Owners. Owners. I mean, look at how many teams are now owned. By Americans, the good, Fenway Sports Group, the bad, I mean you, Stan Kroenke, and the ugly, yep, the Glazers, I mean, bald man with a ponytail, wrong, wrong, wrong. So it's a given. The teams caught American fans, they pre-season in America, they have Americans travelling over to save the games in person, all hail the joys of a Premier League Visit Britain weekend. And I'll say when Dave and I went to Liverpool against Man City this November, we sat down in our seats with J-Dubs. And I think it was four separate groups of American fans. None of them knew each other. They didn't come together. It was just complete coincidence, but they were sat all around us. And it's not just Americans. At Liverpool, there's so many fans from the Middle East, from Asia, from across Scandinavia. Taxi driver actually told me that for Liverpool home games, the city of Liverpool have three days of travel business for each home game. 
He also added that for an Everton home game, they have about two and a half hours of business. But that doesn't mean that every English fan welcomes the change, that they love it. I mean, the hardcore away fans still cannot stand them for good reason. Having away games, road games against a Newcastle that are hours away, suddenly switch last minute to an early kickoff time to cater to fans watching in Asian prime time. They sometimes say the teams now care more about the global fans than the local ones who've shed blood putting the hard miles for their team. Just Google a podcast we did with the Liverpool CEO, the remarkable Peter Moore in 2017, when he admitted the greatest single tension that Liverpool face right now is balancing the authentic identity of the team that's been carefully crafted generation to generation locally, an identity passed down from grandparent to parent to sons and daughters, and to balance that with the lucrative, new, and possibly fickle fan base opportunities abroad. That tension, the nationalism versus globalism debate, if you want, played out by men wearing polyester shirts and cleats. I'll tell you this, though. There's something singular that I love about this relatively new surging American football culture around the Premier League. Sean, of the parochial localism and animosity, by and large, it is the most positive, warm, mutually supportive fan culture I've ever encountered. It's grounded in positivity. It's grounded in love. To me, it's what the world needs right now. What football needs right now. It's what I need right now. One last question. Hey, man, I'm Blazer. This is Sydney in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm a huge Liverpool fan. Um, my question is just any words of advice for difficult times. Um, I recently found out that I don't have a job because of coronavirus, everything going on. So it's a little difficult for me like it is everyone else right now. So just wondering any words of advice in these times without the Premier League and without sports. Thanks so much. Bye. Sydney. Oh. Thanks for your message. First, your kind words. I long for the days when we at Men in Blazers are the worst things in your life again, which is always our aim. I am so sorry to hear your news about your job. No solace, but you're not alone right now. It is a savage signature of our age. I will say this, most important, the moment you lose your job is one in which you have to become even more in tune with your emotions because losing your profession it's really a wheels within wheels distress within the greater distress right now so be hyper in touch with yourself because losing your job can feel like a part of your very identity has been stripped from you and you're going to naturally experience an asteroid field of emotions that can stress you the f out there's going to be anger fear disappointment powerlessness a bit like being an everton fan but don't fight them because all of these emotions are natural. And it's okay to admit that you're touching the darkness. Now repeat after me. This is not about you. This is not something you did. Recognize this. We are all just tiny surfers on a massive, massive wave right now. Even Laird Hamilton. I bet you he's never surfed a wave like this. So give yourself a break. And know that the feeling of job loss... It's going to feel all the more challenging because we're all powerless in isolation. Not a lot you can do. So don't allow yourself to ruminate alone. More than ever, talk about your feelings with your family, your friends, your loved ones, with us at Men in Blazers. All of us. We're all there for you. You know, the same stuff I keep saying. Structure's important. Exercise is important. Trying new things, a new hobby, a new mastery is important. 
but biggest and perhaps hardest in all of this, ask for help if you need it. Don't be afraid. There's no stigma to your reality. Remember, even Laird bloody Hamilton couldn't surf a wave this big. Remember that. So reach out to your social network. Don't allow yourself a chance to dwell, to wallow. Build, connect, believe. There's a really important book that I often turn to, to be honest, by Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a book written by Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor. And he wondered, what was it about those of us who survived? Because they were not the strongest. You know, the biggest guys you'd look at and be that one. He'll survive. Faded quickly. Never the toughest physically. Or the ones that survived just the, the most unimaginable test of endurance. What Frankl realized, it was all about the mentality of the human being. For him, if a person had a sense of meaning... It was the greatest weapon for self-preservation. Meaning gives you purpose. Sydney, it gives you something to live for. And for Frankel, meaning came from one of three sources. I'm going to say them quickly and then drive you to the book because it's amazing. Much better than anything, any other crap that comes out of my mouth. Frankel said, meaning can come from purposeful work, from love, and from courage. From courage in the face of difficulty. And the book's a fast read. I recommend it. But I'm going to leave you with one quote from the introduction. Frankel writes, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself. Or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. I love that. That's Rog speaking. Back to Frankel. Happiness must happen. And the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. Rog again. This is so bloody liberating. Frankel. I want you to listen to what your conscience commands you to do. And go and carry it out to the best of your knowledge. Then you'll live to see that in the long run. In the long run, I say, Sydney, success will follow you precisely because you'd forgotten to think of it oh i raise my bud to you sydney may you and everyone who's in your predicament in your reality and there are thousands there are millions may you move forward with strength and renewed purpose with resilience and love till tomorrow it's rog i'm here at 646-450-9472 if you need me and this is wgfop the bald Keep couraging.